How's it going out there, writers and readers of the world? This is your host, Grant Deem, back after a year-long hiatus to bring you new and exciting conversations about writing. From the moment inspiration sparks to the final polished draft, the writing process is unique to each artist. On this show, guest authors discuss current projects, artistic goals, and describe their themes, writing styles, and choices made regarding craft. I hope that you'll tune in for insightful discussions around poetry, fiction, and creative nonfiction. This is Writers in the World. Hey folks, just one more quick announcement before we get to the episode. You'll hear me reference a different title for the show as I introduce Ben. Please disregard this message. At the time of recording, we were considering a rebrand, but obviously have decided against it. Okay, now, enjoy the show. Hello, everyone, and thanks for joining me today for the first episode of our new podcast, The Art of Storytelling. With me today is Benjamin White. Ben is originally from Kentucky and currently teaches courses in business, HR, and composition in New Mexico. He's written novels, short stories, and essays, and has also published a poem noir titled Conley Bottom, and a poavella titled The Cuban. Ben's most recent book, Recon Trilogy Plus One, was published in November by Running Wild Press. Ben, thanks for coming on the show today. Oh, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah. So uh, a good place to start is probably with your recent publication of Recon Trilogy Plus One. And um, I, I did a little bit of research around that. And one review described it as a journey through the Highlands of Consciousness. And I was wondering if you'd like to speak a little to that statement and to what the work focuses on in a general sense for our listeners. Sure. It's a, it's a four-part book. That's the, the trilogy plus one. It comes from being four separate... Uh, I hesitate to call them narrative poems because it comes with a connotation of Homer and the Odyssey. Uh, so maybe neo-narrative poems is a better description. But uh, they're laid out in a in a poetic uh, fashion, and uh, set in Vietnam. They're all set in Vietnam, so the, the that's the recon part. And the Triggerfish One Two is the first part of it. That is mm-hmm. a a look at a wounded lieutenant. He's he's got a head wound. He's feverish. He's a history major from Middle Tennessee State University. And he's laying there in the jungle and, and imagining uh, a lot of things going on based on the, his knowledge of history. Uh, and that Central Highlands of Consciousness is just a play on, on uh, where he is in the Central Highlands of Vietnam and then going through his consciousness of, of all the decisions he's made to get him there. And, having, and he gets visited by historical figures and he goes to the Acacia Library with with uh, <laughs> with a secret agent named Casey, who who's a, a play on Edgar Casey, the the um, um, the prophet that uh, the sleeping prophet they used to call. Mm. But uh, mm-hmm. so it's it's that's Triggerfish one too. The uh, the next one is Scarecrow Angel, an, another. It's a character who came out of Triggerfish one too. We we didn't have room for him. And I say we because Triggerfish One Two was actually the thesis in my Master's of Creative Writing for Fine Arts and MFA. Oh, nice. No, it was decided that we had too many of that type of character in Triggerfish One Two. So Scarecrow Angel came out to revisit a soldier on watch, and it's it's really kind of stolen. <laughs> well, it's stolen. I won't say kind of stolen. <laughs> what what isn't in, yeah. <laughs> in, yeah. in the field? It's, it's uh, William Blake's um, the I think it's called the Angel, where the the angel comes back to find the the person who imagined him being too old for angels now. So the Scarecrow mm-hmm. Angel comes back to the soldier as a as an imaginary friend from his past. The wow. the leg, the third part is is uh, what would happen to a a wounded soldier's leg that got left in Vietnam if it was if it took on its own sentient being and wow. still haunted the jungles. And then El Dorado was the fourth piece that that uh, 
the the editor, the publisher at Running Wild Press, Lisa Castor, uh, asked me if I had anything that could round it out with a with a fourth piece. And I was working on a play called El Dorado, where a a soldier headed to Vietnam meets a revolutionary, a Mexican revolutionist who had fought with Pancho Villa on a bus. And instead of the play, I, I went ahead and, and changed it over to the format of the, to fit the book. And it's it uh, so it came, it came out in the same format, but it was it's the same story where, where he met the El Dorado. El Dorado, they were the guard for Pancho Villa, the the elite guard that he kept around him. So this is one of those soldiers that, that had been there with him. And so it's a, a kind of a juxtaposition of of the revolution in Mexico and the revolution in Vietnam that, that wow. Lonnie was going over to fight. And I always uh, it started with a vision of seeing a Greyhound bus pull up in the jungle in Vietnam and, uh, and a revolution revolutionary from Mexico getting off the bus and, and say, okay, <laughs> here we go. Wow. Has uh, have, have larger works, you know, been born out of those types of images that sort of flash in your in your mind would you say that some of your other work has sort of been sparked by um almost that that mashup of you know you mentioned two different wars and and this image of the greyhound bus sort of being in a place that it shouldn't be and i i don't know i mean i i don't want to sort of change up this question too much sure. um, I, I basically am getting getting into form and some of the choices you make around that. And how do you sort you said this is more of a uh, neo-narrative uh, <laughs> collection of poems as opposed to, yeah, you know, you've written poem wars and polavelas and, and I don't know, I, I guess sort of what, what comes first, the chicken or the egg, or how do you um, start to get your ideas down sure. and then sort of, yeah. And well, I, even Triggerfish one too, uh, it came about with just a, an, an idea uh, about Woodstock and I wasn't at Woodstock my cousin got married that weekend and I couldn't go and I was also eight years old <laughs> so, <laughs> but uh, uh, the idea of, of Woodstock being patrolled by a soldier what would he see and what would he think and, and what would his orders be as he as he walked through the, the music party the music festival where and so that that's where Triggerfish started, and it, it became that that uh, well. What if we had him wounded in the in the in the jungle, and what else would he see, and where else would he go throughout history? He ends up going to Kent State University as well, and and uh, of course the tragedy that happened there. Mm -hmm. He he is phoning back to to uh, he, he has a radio that the cord from the from the speaker from the handset is severed so he's not really talking to anybody except in his mind and he, he calls back to to echo echo company and, and tells him what he sees and, they, and he gets his orders from from echo and echo sick actual the, the captain and uh so he, he's in conversation basically with himself but with the with what he's learned in the army and, and the way he's learned to communicate in the army and so it's I really see it as a as a piece of it's not necessarily a, a war piece or anti-war piece. It's more of a a piece on identity and and the decisions we make to form that identity. Mm. <laughs> I'm yeah, not sure if no, anybody else sees that, but that's the way I see it. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm it, it, it just just hearing you talk about some of these other features and in the first part, um, it seems to be incorporate a bit of psychology a bit of the supernatural perhaps uh spirits or like you said at least memories sure. of of a pastime of a of a person that that is listening or not there and I'm, I'm wondering how you how you go about making those those choices or i guess it's in my opinion maybe or as i as i think about it it's it's kind of an elaborate balancing act with um incorporating fear absurdity you know, these moments of despair, but so how do you, how do you do that while keeping, um, or, or what, are, what questions maybe are you asking yourself as you include these elements, uh, in a way that's going to keep the reader engaged as opposed to maybe, um, discouraged is not the word I'm looking for, but, um, maybe drifting off into, you know, one feature more so than the other. Yeah. Um, 
yeah, could you just speak a little bit to that about that, that balancing act? Of, and, and I think that different... was that was the problem with Scarecrow Angel. He was he was a little bit too much of mystical fantasy coming back to to revisit you know your imaginary friend from when you were younger, mm. because Triggerfish had already been visited by Diogenes, and and uh, if you if you go far enough back in my educational background, I have a degree in philosophy, and and that. That, that'll guide you through some interesting conversations wow. in your head. <laughs> and, uh, so Diogenes was was a, a, a cynic, and Alexander the Great said, well, well, I need to meet this guy because he's living in a tub. And Alexander the Great asked him, you know, is there anything? I'm Alexander the Great. I'm, I'm here. What can I do for you? And Diogenes supposedly told him, step out of my light. You're blocking my son. And... Uh-huh. And uh, so, and Alexander was supposed to have said, if I, if I had not, if I was not Alexander, I would be Diogenes. And so Triggerfish wow. is laying there in the jungle and Diogenes, he starts off as a private and he comes down and he says, and he calls him Alexander. He, he says, Alexander, what are you doing here? And uh, so there's advice from that philo- philosophical perspective um, to intervene with, with uh, Triggerfish one, two. Um, but the as it progresses, Diogenes keeps getting promoted. He ends up as a sergeant major at the at the end. Because <laughs> every time he comes back, he's been promoted, and because he's playing the army system, which which uh, overlays it as well. But back to the question, it, it's more of a a matter of the philosophical influences, and, and of course the hmm. an interest in history. Myself, I'm not a history major, but uh, I had a I was a history major for maybe one morning before I changed it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I changed my major 19 times as an undergrad, and then I went to lunch. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, so so philosophy is what you decided on eventually. <laughs> eventually, I came back to philosophy. I was, I was there a couple of times. <laughs> and was, okay. And it's a pretty fitting, uh, yeah, pretty fitting focus, I think, to land on after, uh, yeah, the, the contemplation. It was. It actually turned into a double major of philosophy and creative writing after after I got kicked out of the psychology department. <laughs> That's a different story. <laughs> so obviously, your educational background, I mean, fits into some of the choices you make, and um, I don't believe I mentioned this at the at the start of the show. I'll definitely include it in the show notes, but you. You yourself, have, and I know this wasn't um, necessarily written in the list of questions I sent your way uh, to start, but you yourself have has served in the military, um, yeah. uh, both for the both for the Coast Guard and the Army, correct? Yes, yes. I, I had two years in the Army in eighty three to eighty five, and then uh, went back to school. I had a two year degree when I went into the Army. I, I got out of the Army and went back to school and finished up the four year degree. With a with my associate's degree in social science, of huh. bachelor's in philosophy and a bachelor's in creative writing, and you would wow. not believe how many organizations were pounding on my door to get me to come work for them. Is that right? <laughs> no, there weren't any. <laughs> so there was a, the only the uh, the best choice was to go back and and. Uh, uh, I was about to get married and, and about to grow up and, and I needed a place mm-hmm. to land. And the, the army said, well, you were infantry before you'll be infantry again. And I said, well, well, let me go talk to the coast guard. And the coast guard said, we'd love to have you. Mm-hmm. We're small. We'll send you to officer candidate school later on, but come on in enlisted and, and learn the service. And so wow. I ended up with 20 years in the coast guard. Wow. 22 altogether. Well, that's, that's admirable. And, and I thank you. And I, I guess my follow-up to that is I, uh, and you, you don't have to go into great detail or anything, but I, I guess I wonder how those experiences, I mean, obviously your, a lot of your writing includes elements of, you know, there's a character who's a, a service men or, or in the service, or there's some event that has to do with, um, you know, military action and army. And so I'm, I'm wondering like, uh, obviously there's an inspiration there, but I, I guess I wonder it, did, what did writing about or including some of those experiences or themes in your own writing, what did that, what did that open up for you or what did that teach you or why were you drawn to, to do that maybe in the first place? And you can answer any one of those, <laughs> take it in any direction. But um, 
Yeah. Well, I think it starts back of growing up in in Kentucky with Walter Cronkite on the news, and and I look for validation or confirmation that he he used to do a body count with little silhouettes on the screen of of the 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 wounded and the killed in action were silhouetted soldiers on on the screen behind him, representing wow. so many hundreds or thousands or whatever it was. And uh, but I, I can't find that, but I, I remember seeing it. So you, you had that influence early, and then uh, uh, I had a an older brother, twelve years older than I am, who was who uh, spent a year in Vietnam in the Air Force, uh, and so those those impacts were there. And you know, the mm-hmm. I think the philosophy degree and the and the thinking and the and the searching that philosophy provides is another way of saying just paying attention. And, and seeing that that other things are going on and other people are out there experiencing the same things but in different ways and tapping into how they would experience it is is kind of a, a work of imagination that that uh, has allowed those stories to emerge and of course it's Kentucky and it's it's a great oral tradition of, of storytelling <laughs> I grew up listening to yeah. my, my grandmother used to start off the, the three pigs with uh, once upon a time there was there was an old sow and she finally had three piglets and she finally one day said y'all got to get out of here and fend for yourselves <laughs> so she kicked the, <laughs> she kicked the three pigs out of the house <laughs> and, the uh, yeah the, the version that, you don't want you to, to know of the yeah, story. You, you don't hear that everywhere. Uh, <laughs> that version everywhere you go. <laughs> well, that's no, that's a that's a really great segue to maybe um, a few of these other a few of the other questions I have for you. Um, and so let's go let's go to let's go to Kentucky and and Conley Bottom, which was published by Eden Stories uh, last July, I believe. Yes, and that's another interesting form. And I, I, ha- I have all these questions swirling in my head just about form, but I also want to talk about uh, just content and choice, you know, influence and choice and all that. Um, sure. But this, this is a poem war. I, I was able to read it thanks to you, and and really enjoyed it. Um, love the chronology and how and how we move through time uh, as we follow this this speaker through sort of childhood all the way to. Um, adulthood, if, I, if I'm reading it correctly. Um, and so maybe I'm really interested in, in just thinking about memoir and poetry as an art form. Uh-huh. And I guess maybe my first question is, what made you tell this story this way? Uh, what was it like to write a poem noir? Did you plan to do it? Did it just happen? <laughs> uh, there's, a, there's a line from the movie Cool Hand Luke that, that uh, when George Kennedy tells Paul Newman, the, the man, all the time you were planning to do this, you're planning to do this. And Paul Newman, cool hand Luke, answers him and says, "Man, I never planned nothing in my life." <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so I, I, it would be a miss for me to say, "Yeah, that was the plan, Grant." Yes, right. yes, sir, that was the plan. Mm-hmm. <laughs> a lot less formal than that, but uh, it, sure. The I have a a habit, whether it's good or bad, I'll I'll let real poets decide. But uh, when I see a, a place or a person or an event, I have different ways of looking at it and remembering, in this case, remembering it. And so it came out as a series of, of short vignette poems that captured the meaning of those events in, for, from me. Um, mm-hmm. we, <laughs> of course, it's, it's a poem. It's a, it's a collection of poems, but it's also memoirs. They, they are, they all mm-hmm. happen. They're all true. It's, it's creative nonfiction. And, oh, at different instances of time, of course, and with different people and, and different uh, um, influences coming in, different impacts, not even just influences, but impacts on me and my writing as they came in. And, and Conley Bottom was where was the connecting place, triggering town that, that, uh, Okay. Richard, you go, I think. That's not right. But um, the triggering place, and think about all those triggering places where you've been and what they mean to you. And so mm-hmm. so the poem 
and memoir pushed together became a point noir. <laughs> and and uh, I kind of ran it by Eden Stories Press and and uh, the publisher there said, "Hey, I like that. That's that's kind of that's exactly what this is. It's a point noir. Let's nobody's ever heard of it before, but let's let's smash the word together and create our own word." Yeah, no, that's so unique. I mean, yeah, I think if you maybe if you made a plan to write or if I would have made a plan to try to write something like this, it might have uh, I might have stopped myself before I really got started. And so maybe yeah. the whole organic way that this came came about was uh, was fitting was the way. Right. Like it seems it seems natural um, that this and, would sort of. Well, I've also, also. Yeah. Yeah, and I've always said to myself that uh, I am a prolific poet because I'm a lazy fiction writer, <laughs> <laughs> and and maybe vice versa. Yeah, I'm a lazy fiction writer because I'm a lazy or a prolific <laughs> poet. But it's it's the 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 snapshot, and, and I look at it as as a poem is a picture. If you think of if you picked up a picture from the family album and you looked at it all the meanings of that events that, that you took from that picture, what was going on behind the scenes, who was there, who was behind the camera, who was off to the left, who refused to get in the picture, who was saying what when the picture was taking. And all those memories come back. And, and the, without memories, we, we're not who we are without those experiences. And so to, to take a poem and treat it like a picture with meaning behind it and extract the meaning in the words. Um, that was the yeah. approach. And that's probably my approach as a, as a poet anyway. I'm not, a, I'm not a very esoteric poet, although I do have my philosophical moments. <laughs> and, but uh, I, I like to, I don't like to get someone a poem that they, they walk away saying, I have no idea what it's talking about. Yeah, <laughs> no, I, I totally picked up on that. Um, read it, read it, reading the poem more. I loved, I, I really enjoyed it. Um, and it, like I said, I love the I love the innovation in form, and so a couple of things you said I I just want to circle back to maybe briefly. And uh, you sure. you've said that you think of yourself more as a witness than a poet, and I, I kind of hear that coming through with your responses here. And I, but you also write fiction, you also write creative nonfiction, and I wonder does your and so this is more of a general question and more of a processy question, but does your approach change depending on what form you're working in? I mean, related, do you, do you wait to make choices about uh, form sort of later on in the drafting process? I'm just curious as to how you arrive at different um, structures and, and what sort of influences those decisions at what point in the, in the, uh, in the brainstorm or, or drafting process do you maybe steer towards one way uh, over another. Right. Uh, I find myself using a lot of internal rhymes mm. and sometimes the, the line breaks are to keep the rhymes away from being end rhymes. Okay. Uh, so, uh, because end rhymes, I think, get, a, get into a pattern that I don't want to mm -hmm. create, you know, the, the lyrical. Right, right. And so if you throw in the internal rhyme where it's not, ex it's not expected, you, I, I, can, I can use that internal rhyme as a place to, to shift thought or shift the reader's uh, own rhythm that they're expecting or thinking. And, but that, comes, that doesn't come as um, uh, a planned approach. It's more of a natural thing over after writing for so long um, that it just happens. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the the words seem to to lead to other words that sound alike or or, or even rhyme with the internal rhymes. I think we call that being uh, in the zone. I think that's. <laughs> uh, I'm waiting on that. Uh, I'm waiting on that for me personally. But no, I'm not a kid. <laughs> yeah, no, that's. Yeah, sorry, I'm not. Don't yeah. want to interrupt. But yeah, no, that's. No, I think it's a way to, a good way to put it. It, it, it is in uh, uh you know, so a lot of times I'll look at the pen and it's, it's just mm -hmm. going. And uh, what, am, what am I doing here? It's doing all the work. <laughs> so you write longhand. You write you write your your poems or your narratives sort of out uh, handwritten before transcribing. Yes. yes. Oh yeah. So, yes. I, I I'll have a, a a journal 
uh, the point book. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and when I finish one, I'll fold it and date it and, and, and move on because I fold it in half in the same journal. It's kind of hard on the spine of the journals, but uh, they survive. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I have. I, I also work, work that way. I've, I've found that I need to get um, the first couple drafts down on, on a notebook uh, before I approach the screen because something happens once it gets into that uh, screen yes. where it becomes just a, a little bit harder for me to, to get back to sort of the, the, the point of interest, I guess, or some of the key questions I'm investigating. Uh, I'm not sure why that is, but um, something to do with maybe not uh, being able to look ahead really easily or needing to scroll. Um, I find sure. that the drafting is really um, a lot less productive uh, because it's harder for me to move past the first couple paragraphs if I'm working with an early draft um, on the screen. Um, right. And so, yeah, no, it's, I, I always love asking guests sort of those questions about uh, oh. sort of the early stages in a, in a, for a piece. So, yeah, no, I'd, I'd love to see a picture of some of those folded poem books in, in a journal someday. <laughs> um, oh, I've got buckets full, I'm afraid. <laughs> it's, uh, we're right here at New Year's. Uh, Ten years ago, January 1st, 2011, I said, well, if I'm, I'm going to be this writer, I'm going to write. And the resolution was to write at least one poem every day. Mm. And that resolution was broken on March 24th, 2011, because I, I didn't get anything written. Wow. And, and it, it's, uh, it, it created a, a drive and, and a, a feeling. So on March 25th, 2011, I restarted the resolution and, it, it's been closing in on 10 years wow. now that I've written at least one poem a day. That's really and, impressive. And sometimes as many as 10. Wow. <laughs> and one or two of them are good in those 10 years. <laughs> uh, I'm sure there's, I'm sure there's a lot, there are a lot more than that. Um, <laughs> I, do you, do, has your, do you, do you have a writing room? Do you have uh, a routine? Is there a time of day that seems yeah, to be I, more productive for you? It's probably more of a instead of a writing room, a writing time mm-hmm. I, uh, between between. Uh, I get up at four in the morning, wow. and it's a, a very quiet, productive time. Some of that is residual from from the military getting up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you, you get up, you do more before nine o'clock than most people do all day. But then you go in and watch the afternoon movie. Right. <laughs> different, different, yeah, that different that schedules. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But uh, so early in the morning is a creative time, uh, but it, it depends on what's going on. Sometimes late at night is, is just as productive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a, it's a matter of, of just making it your routine. Right. And saying, okay, I'm going to write. Don't worry about the word count. Don't worry about the, the, the good or bad. Uh, my second, my second uh, drafts are usually when I'm typing them up. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, well, I'll take that back because I'll, I'll write it. And then I will rewrite it into a smooth in the journal. And then so the, the second draft would be typing it okay. up. So I will make some changes in, the, in that writing it out. As sure. smooth. So you've been, uh, you've been at this writing thing for, for a while. Um, have you drifted <laughs> more into narrative poetry? Did you start off writing more straight up fiction? Um, have you noticed sort of your inclinations or leanings have, have, have changed at all over the years or why, or why that might be? Have you in, in appreciated or sort of been more interested in one form over the other as time's gone on? Uh, not necessarily. I, I think the, at the, the, the core of it has always been the story. Mm-hmm. Whether you tell the story in traditional short story form or, or um, the, the longer the novella form. So, but then, so the the format has changed to where to use that neo narrative approach and and play with it. Yeah. I don't I don't see that as being you know mine exclusively or or, or me being exclusively neo narrative poems. Um, there it just depends on on what feels right at the time of, of what what a what the story needs to be told right. in a clear way. Um, the again the the 
that narrative or the, the oral storytelling tradition that I, that I grew up with in Kentucky, um, there's, there's some good storytelling. I'm sure. <laughs> and and uh, being able to capture an audience and, and uh, without losing them with too much flowery language or language that they don't speak or, or language that they don't understand, uh, that's, that would be, I would hate to do that right. to anyone. Because right. uh, I hate I it as a reader. I hate it done to me. So what are you saying? <laughs> Why am I having uh -huh. to read this again? <laughs> yeah, some, some choice in language. Yeah, it's... Uh... Yeah. It seems more gatekeeping isn't the right word, but yeah, I, to me, it's at language. The, the ultimate goal is to, to say what you want to say as clearly maybe as you want to say it. And you could probably jazz that definition up a bit, but I do, I, I I'm just, I'm in, I, I agree, you know, wholeheartedly. And I, I, I love the, the description of, of your poetry, the, the choices made and, and in the language specifically and how you really capture um, that place, Conley Bottom, and um... and and Grant, I think I think uh, language is so much part of, of anyone's identity, mm -hmm. whether it's a uh, first language or second language. The, the second language I don't speak at all. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Some would say I don't speak English. But, uh, <laughs> um, uh. The that the still it's still a part of the identity the identity of a person, and so. To use any other language it would just not be true, right. and and uh, you tell the story in another language that that you don't know or that you're trying to to formalize the experience. It changes the experience. Right. It's got to be the language. The experience has to be told in the language that it happened in. Yes. Yeah. No. Exactly. I mean, if not, then you know where. What are you channeling as the as the author or writer? You know, I feel. Um, yeah, I had to. I had in my own experience in an MFA program, I had, I, I was most productive sort of at the very end of it, which makes sense kind of from a time standpoint, but also uh, the last semester and a half or so I wasn't in a workshop. And so I wasn't um, for better or for worse. I wasn't thinking about those other voices as much um, uh -huh. uh, physical, you know, my classmates. And so that's when it, that's when I really uh, sort of took off a little bit in my, in my own writing. So no, it's just it's it's always an interesting conversation to have uh, with authors because people have yeah varying opinions on all of that. Um, sure, oh sure, and and they're all right, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Um, so uh, I have one more uh, follow up question on Conley Bottom, and then a couple more uh, some general questions for for listeners out there. Um, I wondered how that collection sort of came to you i know we talked a little bit about recon trilogy plus one and, and some of the different uh parts of that collection and you know maybe it was an image but this is fairly chronological correct i mean the the poem war uh, for the most part of uh, it, it started in in the late 60s and mm -hmm. and ends with a poem about a 1964 <laughs> Chevrolet that uh, would have been around 1979, 1980. Okay, I see. And so, yeah, I, I mean, I guess my question is, was what were you setting out to write about a place first? Was it more about your own um, experience growing up in that area geographically in Kentucky? Was it? something to do with, you know, family history. And I guess I'm trying to, again, ask another inspiration question, but um, yeah, I guess. I think you're right. I think it, all the above. Mm -hmm. uh, there, there are people that, that enter and Conley Bottom again, being the, the, the common shared place of where these things happen. And Conley Bottom was always there. It was eight miles from the house. And if you were going to go swimming at the lake, you'd go to Conley Bottom. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, so what did it mean to go swimming at the lake? It meant you got to get out of that old hot house with no air conditioning and go down and, right. and swim in the lake. And, and, and uh, you know, you take the picnic with you. you so summer had that, summer had that taste. And I think that's where point number one starts off with was summer having a taste of bologna sandwiches mm -hmm. and tomatoes and cheese. And, um, uh, 
the, the Tom's playing potato chips. So those mm. those um, symbols of the time are important. They have meaning. Right. And so to pull them into a poem and give them that meaning and show them to, it's not much different than than a souvenir that you would put on a bookshelf after a trip. Right. Oh yeah, well, I got that in in Mexico or wherever. Uh-huh. And so the poem the poems are they're, they're intended to do that same kind of thing as being triggers for those memories and those feelings and those meanings that took place specifically for me because I wrote them. Right. But also in general terms to where any reader could could say, you know, we we had a lake where I grew up too. Yeah, I know what he's talking about. Yeah, you you capture just some of those images at the lake. They're so sharp. And like before we before we got going with the questions, I mentioned sort of the the, the the cooler the squeaky picnic cooler and and the food yeah. that's in and the, the squeaky ice and um fishing and how you know you were the speaker as a child and and experiences fishing and as they get older then all of a sudden these new laws apply to them and and now all of a sudden they're not doing you know that activity anymore and so yeah. uh yeah i'm i'm interested um in i guess as as you were sort of growing up in the moment. And I know that's really hard to maybe imagine, but I mean, were you privy to some of these changes as they applied to that place sort of as they were happening in real time? Or is this something that you sort of unpacked as you, um, you know, written, gotten older have, and, and thought about and sort of turned over that place maybe uh, in your mind a few times? I, I think I was uh, aware of, of changes uh, in the, in the place that may have been driven by changes in me, mm. you know, and, and, and I, I probably wasn't growing up, probably wasn't putting those in that term. No, well, it didn't change. You know, I did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> but looking back on it, you can see, well, it's not just the place that changed. It, it's also the person perceiving the place. Right. And uh, to go back and, and add, add more meaning, that just adds more meaning to to the reflection of the places and the people so yeah and and some of it was augmented by additional stories as as you as you progress through like the like mr upchurch and his trailer going over the the bluff and the tornado wow. <laughs> uh, i didn't know that till later and, and he he always he always told the story about the the 40 pound over getting sucked into a coke bottle but uh wow he said you can, but he always started out. He said, "Now you can believe this or not. It, it didn't matter to him whether you believed it or not. He's going to tell it like the truth." And yeah. the, the tornado came through, and a forty-pound gopher was sucked into a coke bottle. <laughs> wow, <laughs> that is an image. Yeah, <laughs> and of course, he lived at Conley Bottom. He lived up the hill from the lake, and, and that's you know, you when you when you know those characters and you know those people. You, it's a tribute to to the place and the people who were there. Sure. Have you gone back, um, or when's maybe the last time you've been back? I, I know it's been a weird. I know it's been a year of not much travel, and uh, <laughs> you're sort of uh, uh, you're you're far away from from Kentucky and Conway yeah. Bottom, and so about I wonder. Miles. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Not a not a hop, skip, and a jump. So oh. um, I wonder. Yeah, I guess I wonder. I mean, do you plan to go back? Do you do you think at all about the reception uh, or or what? Uh, someone from from Conley Bottom, the area, coming across this collection. Um, do you think about that at all, or were you thinking about that at all as as it came together? Um, I know those are kind of two competing questions there, but I guess I'm just thinking again about place and yeah, um, you know, it's still there, and 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 yeah. there are people there, and. And so I guess, how does that maybe factor into uh, everything that, that went into putting, putting this collection together? Right. I, I think putting the collection together was going back. Um, mm-hmm. I haven't been in Kentucky since 2010, summer of 2010. So it's <laughs> working on 11 years now, um, just, just because of schedules and, and uh, other commitments here in New Mexico. Mm-hmm. But uh, putting the, that collection together was in a way going back. And when it, when it was coming together and about to be published, there, 
I wanted to get a picture of the old boat dock that is on the cover uh, from the uh, 70s, early 70s, maybe. And it was it was just a boat dock where boats would pull up and get gas and they might go in and get a hamburger and some french fries or and maybe mm-hmm. some uh, fishing gear. But for the most part, it was just uh, like a little convenience store on the water. Mm-hmm. And now it's a it's a resort that is actually uh, owned and run by a, a high school classmate of mine. And I wanted oh, wow. to make sure that that uh, I had permission to use the picture of the doc. So I, I, I contacted her and I was a little, I was a little bit nervous about her reaction of somebody writing about her place of business. Mm-hmm. It's, it's Conley Bottom Resort now. So it's it's uh, it's not just that little sleepy boat dock that it used to be. It's, it's more of an enterprise at this point where, where mm-hmm. people can make reservations and stay in cabins and, and enjoy the, the area that I grew up enjoying just when it was <laughs> a place where you go swimming. <laughs> right. Very different. Yeah, it's, sure. a, it's a man-made lake. It was dammed up in the 50s and, and created the lake. And so by the time I was born, it was always a lake. I never knew it as a river. But uh, huh. there were there were always stories about um, they ran out of time. They were supposed to bulldoze everything smooth and, and clean up all the old home sites and, and replace the re- relocate the, the cemeteries. And because there were communities up and down the river that were going to be gone. Mm. And so you, you kind of grow up with that. If you think about it and take time to think about it, those places that were gone were full of lives and, and livelihoods and right. people who lived and died on and farmed on the land. And they were under that water. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Kind of Literally spooky, and, you know, when you think they're under that water. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, that's, I mean, that's personal, yeah. you know, for you. So um, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's a, great read i mean i i definitely encourage our listeners to to pick to pick up a copy it's it's uh, it's an innovation in form and um for me personally uh i've been to places like Conley mm-hmm. bottom and so it was it was familiar uh to an extent and still um packed with with really nice surprises uh from a reading standpoint um and yeah some of these images are sticking with me i'm thinking of <laughs> Uh, chip teeth and yeah, the the best fries you can get at the counter where you can get some free advice from uh, the woman working at the at the restaurant yes. there and yeah, all of that stuff. So um, that yeah, thanks again for talking a bit about sure, that. <laughs> How much time do you have? <laughs> <laughs> well, I got a I got a few fi- few final questions here that are more general. Okay, um, if if you're okay with switching directions, just oh, sure, a little bit. sure, I, I know. I know you're busy. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, we're sitting here in the first week uh, of January, sort of on the on the on the on the cusp of returning to teaching duties. And I know you you return uh, this week, correct? Oh, uh, well, I think Friday. I'm supposed to have a class. Friday. <laughs> okay. For me, well, it's not you... a class. It's a, it's a gather back together kickoff for the the classes next week. Sure. Yeah. Right. Here's the right syllabus. Yeah. And meet everybody and make sure we're all on the same page for this uh, hybrid slash virtual slash, you know, however it's going to look for, for folks um, semester. Um, so I, with all, with all that being said, I, I would like to ask you just because I, in talking with you a little bit, I know that you, you teach three different types of classes. Um, you, you do work editing. You're obviously busy writing um, I think I might know a little bit uh, uh, in, in terms of how you might answer this, but how, how do you balance all of that? I mean, is it as simple as, you know, you're getting up at that, at that golden hour of, of 4 a.m. every day, um, which maybe there's a follow-up to that, which, you know, how do you get, how do you stay motivated to do that? Um, but yeah, how do you, do you have any um, tips or advice for, for other writers out there that are that are either struggling or wondering how to, you know, carve out that, that writing time. I think, the, well, four o'clock helps. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Of course that, that uh, some people will say, well, no, no, it's, it's 10 to two in the morning that helps. And, 
and I, I'm not productive during between 10 and 2 in the morning at all. But um, and so it, mm-hmm. it, it really comes down to a matter of routining, setting that routine and sticking to it as far as balancing what all you have to do. Um, and, and sometimes there will be responsibilities that pull you away from any one of those, those things you need to do. Uh, but it's still to recognize that, well, I'll, I'll get back to that, that writing. I've, I have a, a son who goes to school in, in North Dakota, <laughs> my not North Dakota. And so there's times when I, I've driven him back up, up to school and I'll tell him, mm-hmm. hey, we, we got to get a hotel room because the, the streak is, is on the line. The poem streak is on the line and, and he'll know it. Yeah. You've got to write something. You've got to keep the streak going. You've got to. <laughs> And, oh, that's awesome. and so it's, it's that's a, really find cool. those supportive voices in your lives that, that don't say, well, why are you writing that for? It doesn't matter if it's published or not. It's, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a, and I think it goes back to where I, I'm finally doing, finally started doing the third person bi- biography. You know, you have to do those things when you, when you publish, mm-hmm. they do a third person bio and nobody likes to do them because nobody likes to talk about themselves in the third party. I said, well, what is it that I used to say, you know, I've got so, so much schooling that puts you on the day shift and, and kind of ripped off Bob Dylan. But um, <laughs> I said, well, what is it really that I'm doing? And, and uh, whether it's a, a format of a poem that somebody would say, oh, yeah, that's a, that's, a, that's a poem. And well, is it or is it just a reflection that has line breaks in certain places? And some of my line breaks in the past have been where it should have been the comma, <laughs> you know, line break instead of a comma. Right. Um, but uh, uh-huh. to say, look around your world and see what's going on and write about what it means to you. I think that's the, that's the key to, yeah. to writing and, and keep a, an eye on what happens that, that flows over for me into the classroom, even online classroom. Although I, I am much more lifelike mm-hmm. in person. No, really. I, <laughs> I don't know. You are quite entertaining. I love these so many one-liners. I'm I'm kind of scribbling <laughs> some notes over here on this end that I'll have to yeah. I'll have to try I, out. I tell my but, students that make them make them think a little bit about oh uh, yeah, how many years? I would hope he is. <laughs> but those events, so everything, everything in your life, every experience you have, whether it's it's so getting stopped at a stoplight, it, it has meaning. There's a purpose. There's a there's a reason that you got stopped at the stoplight. Maybe it's your way of life. Maybe maybe it's karma. Yeah. Maybe there's somebody coming down the other way that you just stayed out of the intersection to avoid. Oh right, yeah. No, I think that's a huge turn or, or uh, a a place in perspective or that that I struggled getting to. Um, or at least when I got to it, when I, when I started doing it again, I, not to, not to talk about my experience again, but I'm just, it's re- what you're saying is resonating with me because once I made it just about the work and not about, uh, this idea I had for a final product that, um, the thing I was working on was never going to turn out to look like that in the first place. If you, if you're with me, um, that, that opened up quite a bit for me and it did just become about. It, it was saying yes to sort of what you just said about this is meaningful and um, whatever I'm putting my time into is, yes. is meaningful and sort of uh, trusting yes. that a little bit. And, and writing about it, writing about it is where the witness part comes in. You know, there's, think about how much history mm-hmm. is lost because people didn't write. And, right. and exactly. they, they didn't share. So we have to rely on somebody else's version of history and, and the history books we learn in school. It's okay. It's, it's a broad, big umbrella, 30,000 feet level. But there were people living there. There were people who lost their house to the lake, you know, who had to move, mm-hmm. had to relocate because the lake was coming. And how could they have felt about it? Ten years later, right. how did they still feel right. about it? And now, you know, a hundred years later, Gosh. how do they still feel about it? How do their families feel about right. being relocated at, at pennies on the dollar for what the bottom land is worth? And so you 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 capture those. You're you're you are a witness. We are all we are all witnesses of of history and, and how we we write about right. it and interpret it. It may not be somebody else's interpretation. 
Uh, you know, even my, my brothers and sisters, having read the book, they'll say, I don't, I don't read that at all. Or, or, yeah, you got that part. You know, you, you captured that well. Mm-hmm. I had a cousin who remembered the French fries at, at the, the boat dock. She, she told me, you, you got that part, which is rewarding. <laughs> yeah. Oh, definitely. Yeah. I mean, is it, I, because reading, that's such a rewarding moment when you feel sort of validated or seen. You know, I even felt that I've never been to Conley Bottom and I'm reading I'm reading some things and I'm thinking of uh, time spent at, at a lake or, mm-hmm. you know, the, the beach around a, a smaller lake or and yeah, I, I just it, it's obviously memory is a phenomenon and something that uh, is, is yes. really interesting to explore uh, on a writing level and the form that you've taken on to, to sort of investigate that or at least include it in. Um, the story about Conley Bottom is, yeah, as a reader, it is very, uh, it's very rich. So, um, yeah. Um, so I, another question for you. Um, I know it, it, in the previous podcast that I hosted writers in the world, we, we had, we had built up quite an audience. Most of them MFA students or prospective MFA students. Um, I anticipate that being the same for this show. And so I'm wondering if you have any advice for either, um, and, and you may even be rehashing some of the things you've already said to me, but if you have any advice for either uh, students in a program, students looking for a program, any memories or lessons from your time at the University of Tampa that you would like to share to our listeners or with th- our listeners? I think it's, it's an opportunity. The, the MFA, getting in an MFA program, you've already demonstrated the skills. And I was rejected from enough of them to know that okay, they're looking for people with skills. <laughs> and uh, but once you once you get in there and you get in that that community of creatives, you you get to be creative and and don't necessarily cling to your to your way or your own definition of being creative. Listen for others. Um, there will be people who who. From a poet, poet's perspective, there'll be classmates who are excellent at form, who live for form, who know exactly what iambic pentameter is. <laughs> I'm not sure I ever learned. <laughs> I know I never wrote it. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I'll have to Google. I just Google know what it's not, and that's what I write. <laughs> but uh, um, Right, right. Somebody asked me once, you know, what did the MFA do for you? I think it, it gave me confidence to, to share my work with, with, uh, to send it out mm-hmm. and, and, and have it rejected. You know, even, even though it's rejected, it's still sent out and rejected. Yeah. And, and to work, work out, right. you know, you mentioned my, my editing with Running Wild Press. There's, there's some things that we, we don't accept, uh, but we, we give it every shot that we can to, to be, to be acceptable to be accepted mm-hmm. and many times we found ourselves giving feedback to the to the authors telling them if you just develop this character a little more or you take this idea and, and turn it into a novel we would love to see it again and and so it's it's kind of uh even though in an mfa program you may not feel empowered to give a uh, positive feedback back that's what the workshops are about what you what you say and how you interpret yeah. something, how you see something as a reader, may impact the way the writer meant for it to be or didn't know they. Oh, I didn't know that. And exactly, so, exactly, right. And looking at the whole thing is more of like you were saying this opportunity as opposed to, you know, your whole uh, <laughs> identity is on the line every time uh, your work yes. comes up or something like that. Um, I think it's another uh, lesson in perspective and yeah. just being mindful. And, and I don't um, think I don't think the yeah, MFA no, that's, that's good advice program changed what I write. I think it changed how I write it and and how I organize it mm-hmm. on the page and how it looks and and how it pauses where it needs to pause and speeds up where it needs to speed up for the reader. It takes. Uh, the, the writing experience from a, a reader's point of view. And Grant, you probably heard me say this as an editor. Right. I, I don't edit as a writer. I edit as a reader. 
five. <laughs> don't distract mm -hmm. me or confuse me with your details. Just yeah. be, be plain. Tell me where you want me to go as a, as a Yes. And that's the that's the yes. MFA yes. takeaway that I had was okay. Let's not confuse the the reader, but um, but also that that confidence of of. Hey, I, I earned my spot through the, the MFA screening process and not everybody does. And, mm. and uh, to, right. to take it away, and so now my confidence is let me send it out to the, the broader audience because it's, I am a writer. <laughs> yes, yes. No, I think that's another important moment that for, that for me personally didn't, didn't happen the moment I was accepted into a program or even, you know, a year and a half or halfway yeah. through the program. I'm not sure when that clicked. Um, but, but I think that's something that maybe a lot of younger or developing writers deal with is, is not just imposter syndrome, but just yeah. that's part of it, but also just wondering how to, how do I get there? And um, yeah, no. So this is all just mm -hmm. great advice. And are you currently teaching writing, uh, I know you're teaching composition. Are you teaching any creative uh, writing? Do you have aspirations? I, I teach writing uh, to... at the uh, Southwestern Indian Polytechnic Institute, SIPI. Um, it's a it's a school mm -hmm. for for natives, and my ultimate goal of uh, of squeezing the back door to be an adjunct faculty and teach composition, but my ultimate goal is to create a a creative writing program there with the school. And that's my, my, oh, nice. my, oh, great. My intent behind the scenes. That's awesome. Uh, that would be great. Because, uh, and even in the writing classes, and, and this may be not particular to, to native students, but anybody who thinks that they don't have a voice needs to look in the mirror and say, wait a minute, I've got a voice. And, and writing is the way to get that to an invisible mm -hmm. audience, whether or not they ever, any audience ever reads it or sees it, you're still writing for an invisible audience. And the, you sit down and write, mm -hmm. think about how it's going to impact or how you intended it to impact somebody hearing. Right. And just, and, and sometimes you don't, you know, you don't know what you know until you can articulate it either metaphorically or uh literally or whatever or what have you so i think writing is just so important um and yes as, as you mentioned um it's it's a way to figure out who you are you know and, and, and you write story, it down so. to see what you think once you see it you know what you think mm -hmm. see what mm -hmm. you think you can always think right. what the eraser's for <laughs> yeah or, or the line exactly uh-huh Right, right. A little cross out here. Uh, exactly. Um, Excellent. I have one more question. It's sort of open-ended. Um, you can sort of talk about or describe or plug whichever you'd like or both. If you want to talk a little bit about your work as an editor with Running Wild Press or any upcoming publications uh, with that press or – and or if you'd like to speak a little bit about Recon Trilogy Plus One, which just came out in November, uh, to leave our listeners with a little, a little taste or an idea um, of what they can expect from, from that, I would be really happy to just, yeah, before we sign off, give you a moment to promote. Well, let's start with uh, collecting the jury in with the, the anthology of short stories number five. Coming out from Running Wild Press, yeah, uh, probably in September. It should be on the bookshelves and the bookstores by September. Uh, I've got a couple of more stories I need to polish right. off and 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 finish off the the manuscript. But it's going to be a collection of forty stories that uh, are very eclectic in nature. But that's by design from Running Wild Press. They uh, Lisa loves to publish things that other publishers wouldn't and. And, but there's still good quality storytelling and good quality writing. Uh, so we're open to, to many, yeah. many different types of stories and different ideas and, and even formats. She's, she's the one that first published the Cuban in the novella form. 
for me. <laughs> so, uh, and and the Cuban, great. A uh, little little tease on the Cuban. The Cuban is a Russian. Of course he is. Why why wouldn't he be? He <laughs> was. Uh, uh, he, he started <laughs> off in a in a German prison camp as as a as a, as, a, as a Russian, an Untermensch, not necessarily Jewish, but uh, as a as a Untermensch of of underclass person that the the Nazis put in a concentration camp. He got out. He was a Soviet soldier. He was a translator for the for the Soviets. Then he was a able-bodied seaman going around the world after the war. He ended up rolling tobacco in Tampa and rolling cigars. And then he ended up huh. with uh, Castro in, in Cuba because he learned Spanish as well. <laughs> and so wow. language and identity, it's all about language and identity and, and him telling the story as a 95-year-old man in, uh, in, in Havana. The, supposedly wow. it was intended to be the day that the flag went up over the American embassy again in Cuba. A good day for reflection. And, and he reflects. Oh, wow. <laughs> Yeah. Another mashup, though, of, yeah, just just origin or, or nationality and, and and someone from one place being in another. I yeah, just like I like that theme working yes. through. I appreciate that theme working through. And, uh, and then that, that brings us up to the recon trilogy. It's it's uh, I've, I've talked to Vietnam veterans about it because uh, the last thing I wanted to do was to look like I was misappropriating somebody else's experiences uh, and and like i said i was i was right. eight years old during woodstock and and uh, uh vietnam was well before me in my army time although my, my time in the army was spent under the tutelage of vietnam veterans who were senior enlisted people who stayed in in the organization for whatever reason wow yeah <laughs> and, uh, they, were, they weren't going to let me inherit their That's organization for sure <laughs> No, I want to, but that, that was an agreement we came to. Right. And, and so it's, it's, a, it's a look at just the events. And there's, there's a certain degree of, uh, I don't know if it's mysticism or, or magical elements to it. Um, it's really intended, especially in Triggerfish 1-2 and in El Dorado, there, there are head injuries in both of those. And um, not necessarily in El Dorado as, as much. Of course, Triggerfish went to it's feverish, and he's he's running through history with with visitors and people and conversations that that we all have in, in times of um, in quiet times. I remember that person coming to me, or what if what if uh, Jean Paul Sartre actually did come to Thanksgiving dinner and we had a conversation? What would we say? And uh, uh, that's the philosophy. Of it. But uh, El Dorado was was. Uh, <laughs> Let, it was the, the the conversation they had on the Greyhound bus going to San Francisco was not explicit until mm. uh, the the soldier had to get back to the base on his own, and then he was remembering what the revolutionary had told him on the bus and the things that that you had to do. Just uh, as a as a tease, and, and uh, uh, Pancho Villa put the horseshoes on backwards on the horses. Uh, he he would take for the horses. He put the horseshoes on the wrong way. So when he was being tracked, huh. people were going the wrong way. <laughs> and so in wow. in El Dorado, there's a there's a point where. The soldier who needs to get out of the jungle now back to the base, without being tracked, he takes another pair of boots from from uh, one of his his fallen comrades. He takes the sole of the boot, cuts it off with his knife, and uses bootlaces to strap it on backwards. So when he's being tracked, he's being tracked the wrong way. Oh wow! And so it, so it's just that subtle. Let me remember what what lessons I can take from that from the revolution. To apply it to my own situation here in Vietnam, and it's it's uh, it goes from there. <laughs> yeah, Pancho that's Villa was a genius. There, there's no, a, that's, that's was a great a, Brett. He was a tactician. He, he, uh, he couldn't rule. He, he wasn't much of a politician. Yeah. He was a, a, an excellent tactician. 
Yeah, I'd say that's <laughs> that's very tactful. If you're, yeah, not 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 to be not to be tracked, but yeah, no, those are the those those features. You know, someone someone may recognize it, and and that that is it familiar yeah. with that history, and most won't, and it still just adds to the still is in conversation, yeah. you know, with, with history. So, and I just, I find that. Yeah. And, and El Dorado important is, is work. in the so. book. He's, he's there talking to him. Of course, in reality, he wouldn't be, he would only be a voice in his head talking to him. So that's the, that's the mystical magical part. Huh. <laughs> I, I love that, that there's, that that's part yes. of, yes. of the work. So well, I um, I don't want to take up any more of your time. I know you have some um, online. Oh, surely, surely you guys have some more questions. Help me out. <laughs> <laughs> well, we might have to do a we def- we might have to do a follow up episode, maybe closer to uh, the well, release that's... of the anthology, or um, if the next part in the in the recon trilogy when when that's set to be released. Can have you on again and, sure. and talk a little bit about it. It is that, out and available at Amazon.com or, a, or an independent bookstore. Support your independent bookstores. And, and uh, uh, but, right. but uh, exactly. it's, it's been a pleasure, Grant. It's, it's been enjoyable. Hopefully, I haven't rambled on too much. And that's our first show back from the longer-than-anticipated break. I hope you enjoyed it. Join me next time as I interview Dr. Jenny Mueller about her two poetry collections, published essays, and how themes involving travel and time factor into her work. ¶¶